pray. Father, I thank you so much for who you are this morning. I thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your faithfulness, God, for your presence. Lord, I praise you that you never leave or forsake us. Father, I thank you for your word. God, how I thank you for this text. Lord, we are here because you are a God who is slow to anger, compassionate, abounding in steadfast love for sinners. And so, God, there isn't a person in this room for whom this word does not speak. And, Father, would you help me preach this morning? Would your word, what you breathed into this text through your Son, be plain to everyone who hears? I ask this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We ended Colossians last week, our little eight-week study through that letter. And next week, God willing, the plan is to start a series in First and Second Peter and Jude. And what I'd like to do as we go through these, um, go through the Bible together, is is in between. Uh, our different book series, I'd like us to, to just take a Sunday, or, or maybe maybe a little more sometimes, but at least just a Sunday, to just take some reflections on the grace of God that is so clear to us in Scripture, just as a constant kind of drumbeat for what we want to be about together as a church. And this morning, um, I want us to look at Luke 15 together. In Matthew 13:35, you don't need to turn there, unless you want to, Jesus said that one of his purposes, really the the main purpose for speaking in parables, these stories that he told, was to reveal things about God that had been hidden from the foundation of the world. So when Jesus is telling these parables, they're not first to tell us about ourselves or tell us about something that we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to live. They're telling us something first and foremost about who God is and things that weren't known before, but were always true. When we come into Luke 15, Jesus tells three of those parables, just back to back. And through them, He is bringing something about the nature and character of God to light that never would have been known before. Nobody ever would have guessed it before. But it's knowable now. And there isn't a person in this room that does not need what this text is telling us about God this morning. Luke chapter 15, I'll begin with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Him. Let me read that again. Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all drawing near to hear him. I wonder why. Why Jesus? Why would sinners draw near to Jesus? And notice what it says. The sinners were drawing near to him to get close to him so they could hear him. They wanted to listen. Has there ever been anyone in the world more holy than Jesus? Then how in the world were sinners drawn to him? We don't think holiness is attractive, right? We think being holy makes the world hate us. And then Jesus comes. And being holy makes arrogant, self-righteous, religious people hate you. 
And being holy makes sinners anxious to be around you. Are we sure that we define holiness the same way that God does? Are we sure? If our definition of holiness or the practice of holiness makes us unattractive to the world, maybe we're missing something. If we truly want to be Christ-like, at some point we're going to be called gluttons and drunkards and tax collectors and friends of sinners because Jesus was. The ministry of Jesus shows us that inviting someone close, eating with them, welcoming them or being willing to be seen with them doesn't automatically mean that we're condoning their sin. It may mean we are right where Jesus would be. Jesus perfectly displays the nature of grace. That God came close to show that He was reconciling. And God is showing us in the life and in the behavior of Jesus that the Holy God does not reconcile with sinners coldly or from a distance. Jesus' ministry had the shape and character it did because Jesus knew that He was going to the cross to die for sinners. So as He broke bread and handed out wine to tax collectors and sinners, He wasn't condoning their sin in that. He was letting them know how He planned on actually dealing with it. They weren't going to pay the price for it. He would. And since He would, and since God would accept the payment of Jesus, why not pour the drinks? Why not hand out the food? And make a statement about the fact that reconciliation was about to be made. That's what Jesus was doing. The tax collectors were specifically Jews who collected taxes from fellow Jews for the Roman Empire. So they made their living that way by charging extra amounts. They exacted whatever amount they wanted to, and many of them became very rich off of the backs of their own countrymen. Many of you probably know that. People hated tax collectors. They hated them. The only place they were welcomed socially was among the sinners. That's why they're always together. And not just your ordinary, everyday sinners, right? Even the Pharisees admitted that on some level, everybody is a sinner and everybody has to become right with God. But the sinners that associated with the tax collectors were the ones who deliberately and repeatedly and persistently transgressed the requirements of the law. These were the prostitutes. This is how they were labeled. These were the tax collectors, the drunks, the sluggards. That's who Jesus ate with. And apparently he ate with them in spite of the fact that they hadn't cleaned up their lives first. While they were still sinners, Jesus Christ ate with them. Look at verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. I've heard a very um, intriguing observation that if our message If the message we preach isn't attracting the same people that Jesus did, maybe we aren't preaching the same message that Jesus did. If when our church gathers, people like tax collectors and sinners don't feel welcome, then maybe our gathering isn't Christ-like. And again, nobody is talking about getting soft on sin. that's, That's the straw man argument we use so that we can justify not wanting to associate with people that are sinners. Well, we don't want them to think we're condoning their sin. Jesus apparently did not think that eating with people and sharing life with them on some level was condoning their sin. Now that, that, that becomes the 
You know, they're soft on sin over at that church. They don't let anybody in the door over at that church. Maybe that church is preaching the same gospel that Jesus did. doesn't mean they are, but it might mean they are, because they're attracting the same people that Jesus did. Why were the Pharisees and scribes grumbling? It's very simple. Because he, he tells you, Luke tells you, because Jesus welcomed sinners and ate with them. Period. There's nothing to qualify there. Nothing. He welcomed sinners. He broke bread with them as a sign of fellowship. What would we do if we saw a brother or sister eating in a restaurant with a known sinner? Not just, again, everybody's a sinner, but we're talking like what they've done is so bad or what they are doing is so bad that that's how people know them under that label of they're that, whatever it is, right? What if we saw a brother or sister fellowshipping with them, hanging out with them, eating with them? What if we knew that a brother or sister or family had a known sinner in their home to eat with them. What would we think? Would we cover our mouths and whisper? Because Jesus heard the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes. He knows they think what He's doing is wrong and improper and ungodly. So, verse 3, mark that, so He told them this parable. We cannot miss, we cannot miss the importance of that word, so. God's word is so perfect, beloved, and so precise and deliberate. The word so tells us that Jesus' parable is a specific response to the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. We cannot miss that. We cannot miss that. That's what follows. That's what it is. It's Jesus' response to their grumbling and complaining that he's eating with sinners. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Jesus assumes right here, look at what he's doing, the way that he words it. He assumes that you go after something when you lose it, and when you find it, there is joy. Look at verse 7. Just so, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Who do you think He's talking to right here. Verse 2 again, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus ran over to them and said, No, 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 you don't understand. I'm not eating with them like that. I'm not enjoying it. You guys don't understand. Jesus did not do what Peter did when the Jews came to Galatia. Jesus didn't stop eating with the tax collectors and sinners, the, the dirty Gentiles in Peter's case. Instead, Jesus stayed right where He was and told three stories. And this first one is really interesting. Very interesting. The shepherd in the story is not responsible, is he? You don't leave 99% of your livelihood in the open country to go after 1% of it. You don't do that. It's just not responsible. It's not wise. What about your investment? What about your job? 
Sheep get lost. That's what they do. You still have 99. But why worry about one? You remember in John chapter 10 when Jesus said that He knows His sheep by name and He calls them and leads them out. Maybe what is going on is that this shepherd knows all 100 of these sheep by name and He loves every single one of them individually. And when one goes missing, everything stops. Everything stops until He finds it. He leaves the 99, the responsible ones that didn't run away, He leaves them in the open country. There's a reason Jesus says that. Sheep don't know karate, they don't carry weapons, they cannot defend themselves. A sheep knowing karate would be terrifying, let's admit that, but they don't. (laughs) They don't. There's 99 sheep now vulnerable to all kinds of attacks and danger. But that didn't matter in that moment. So, that's the way Jesus paints it. He searched until he found the missing one, and he threw it over his shoulders, we can imagine, maybe laughing, crying, celebrating, and to show even more apparent overreaction, he then has a party in verse 6 and invites his friends and neighbors. Imagine getting that knock at your door. You have, you have to come. I, I made hot dogs. There's dip. We found a sheep. Right? It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. Look at verse 7 again. Just so. Just so? Really? Just so? I tell you, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The 99 good sheep in this moment, they don't need rescuing. But everybody needs salvation. Jesus, right? There's there's no such thing as a person who doesn't need to repent of their rebellion against God and be reconciled to Him. Jesus is calling the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes at what He's doing, eating with tax collectors and sinners, He's calling that evidence that they are not aware of their own need to repent. They are lost. And nothing is more tragic than a lost person who thinks they're saved because they aren't as bad as someone else. But also note the face value of the verse. When a tax collector or a sinner is found, the heavens apparently erupt in joy. In fact, Jesus says that they have more joy than what is shown in the parable. It's bigger than that. This must be some kind of party. But Jesus presses His point. Look at 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, that would be ten days' wages, basically, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so. There it is again. When you, beloved, when you read and phrases start to repeat, they're trying to tell you something. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What joins the two stories together? It's the rejoicing when you love things, or even if you just value things, if you lose them, you have to find them. And they meant so much, be it a sheep and a coin, that everything in the lives of these people stopped until they found them. What is Jesus trying to say? Right? 
What point is he pressing? Look at the woman in the story. It's, it's obviously late because she has to light a lamp. I mean, how would you feel? Just picture this for a minute. How would you feel if it's the middle of the night and there's banging at your door, you run to the door, and it's your sweet neighbor lady, and she says, listen, listen, I'm sorry, I know everybody was sleeping, but I found a quarter. I had a jar on the mantle of quarters. I count them every night. I lost one, I, and I found it. Come over. you got to come over. This is, this is too big, right? She threw a party. She was sweeping, looking frantically. She throws a party. She invites her friends and her neighbors, just like the overreacting shepherd. And we find the same words basically again in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus didn't have to say just so. He doesn't have to compare heaven's divine rejoicing with the joy of a woman that finds a lost coin or a shepherd that finds one sheep. And yet he brings them together in front of us in this story that has a very clear context to it. What is it exactly that Jesus was doing then with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus was doing what you do when you throw a party. He was eating and drinking with them. It it was significant what he was doing because the Pharisees and and, and the scribes took note of it. It wasn't just a random meal. This was something. And before we head into the last of these three stories, let's make sure we get our bearings. Okay, Sheep and coins are not morally culpable things, are they? Sheep are sheep. Coins are inanimate objects. Coins don't lose themselves. Coins don't find themselves either, but that's a different sermon. But Jesus is given two things here that haven't sinned, right? Well, what about when you're lost because you've decided you want to be lost? What if getting lost is the result of your own willful decision? What if your lostness is your fault? How will God act then? Because these stories are very quaint. But sometimes we're lost because we're wicked. We're not just lost because we're unfortunate. What does God want us to know about His disposition towards lost things when those lost things are willfully rebellious sinners? Let's look at verse 11. 11 through 16. And he said, so this all happens at once. Okay? This all happens at once. These three stories. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now we know this story, most of us, right? This is a, one of the most familiar stories in all the Bible. The first four verses here are written deliberately to paint a very specific picture of this younger son. And let's just be clear, the younger son was garbage. I mean, he's saying to his dad, basically, since you won't die, can I just have... And he doesn't... Again, I phrase it as a question. It wasn't a question. Since you won't die, just give me my money now. Give me the money in the inheritance now. He doesn't ask. He demands. And without saying goodbye, apparently, he just gets it and leaves. And to make matters worse, he wastes every penny. So it's not like he was you know, an, an entrepreneur and had this desire to start a business and make something of himself and his dad was holding him back so he needed his inheritance. Now that's not what he did with it. He just wanted to blow it. He just wanted to have fun. And we find out later from the older brother that that basically involves just prostitutes and wasting your money. Reckless living. And there would be nothing more horrible than for a young Jewish man to end up feeding pigs. So he's in anywhere near home. He's really gone far, away from home. He's left Israel, we can think. And he ended up so desperate and hungry that he started longing to eat pig slop. And to make matters worse, nobody would even give him that. Verse 17, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your higher servants. And he arose and came to his father. Beloved, this young man came crashing into verse 17 as one thing. Desperate. He's desperate. The way the story is written is important because so often... This story is robbed of all its beauty because we think that what happened was, magically, this man repented, right? That's what we think. He he repented. He faced up to what he had done. And that's why he goes home, because he feels bad about what he did to his dad. That is not why he went home. That's not what we see in the text. We're ignoring the context and missing the whole point, if that's what we think. He came to himself in verse 17. He didn't go before God. We can twist it into a story about the kind of repentance God accepts when the whole point of the story is the undeserving nature of the one being saved. Starvation doesn't help you focus. It makes you delusional. This is precisely why Jesus started with a sheep and a coin. The point of these stories is not this is what lost things can do to make themselves findable. This is what lost things are supposed to do in order to make themselves savable. The context of this story is the word so in verse 3. The context is the anger of self-righteous people at Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. These aren't three parables about the nature of true repentance. It's not what is happening here. They were three escalating stories 
about the response of Almighty God to sinners. What Jesus Christ is about to do in this text is astounding. It's beautiful. It's unbelievable. Jesus is going to show that heaven not only rejoices when lost things are found, yes, but God is the one that throws the party. That's why this story is third, and it's precisely what makes it so beautiful. We haven't seen anything yet. We have no evidence whatsoever in the text that this young man had an ounce of decency in him. He remembered that his dad was rich. So he concocted a confession that he thinks will win his dad over after what he had done to him. Let's say that wasn't what it was and he really felt bad about what he had done. It won't matter. That's the thing. We'll see that. It won't make any difference. So he heads home. And we read, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, shook his head, sat down, crossed his arms, and waited. Waited to lay in to his jerk of a son. Because that's what you would do. Right? That's, that, that's the only proper response here. What he did was so wrong and horrible. We know one thing for sure. He, he isn't just going to welcome him home. Right? I mean, not only would that be a huge miscarriage of justice, but it would mean that the son might never realize the seriousness of what he had done. I mean, if you just welcome your son home after all that, he might think you're a pushover, and it might only be a matter of time before he pulls the same thing again. He can't enable him, because that is a real thing. You can do more harm than good by enabling somebody to pretend that nothing had happened would be enabling. It would be a horrible thing to do. So this father, and remember Jesus is painting a picture about God the Father, so surely something like that is going to be the response because God is not just a good dad. God is God. The holy God. The stakes here couldn't be higher. This is Jesus talking. So surely, beloved, surely, Jesus is going to take this opportunity to show us the hoops that we will have to jump through if the Father waiting for us when we come home is God the Father. So prepare yourselves, because this is serious. What do we have to do for God to welcome us home? We have all literally sinned against heaven. Literally. None of us are worthy to be called sons and daughters of God. Yes, God will forgive us if we ask. Yes, He'll take us back, so to speak. But we got that forgiveness, let's not forget, at the cost of His Son's life. Jesus had to bleed and die for you and I to be forgiven of our sins. So we can't think, there's no way we should think, that salvation means that then God would be kind to us. God's love is not like that. Remember, it's, it's divine. It's perfect. It's not mushy. Look at the second part of verse 20. But. See, why is that word but there? 
right? Because he's not repentant. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, a son smelling like pig. Right? Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for... This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. How could it be that Jesus is portraying his father this way? The willingness of God to make himself accessible to us is a humility so vast and so deep that we cannot begin to mine its depths. We're reminded here of God wrestling with Jacob and letting Jacob win to show him what kind of God he was going to be, what kind of covenant Lord he was going to be. We're reminded here very cleverly by Jesus of Esau. Do you remember? Who when he saw the younger brother who had betrayed him and taken his birthright, after all those years, came running and embraced Jacob, fell on his neck, wept and kissed him. It's the same image, almost. I hate it that this story is so easily turned into a tale about what true repentance looks like. If you want to come home and be welcomed, this is how you have to come home. Beloved, it's not that we don't need to repent of our sins. Of course we do. But that is not what this story is doing. It's not what this story is doing. Jesus wants us to know how we will be welcomed when we come home, regardless of where we've been and regardless of why we left. The Father here, beloved, does not respond to the Son's confession. That's not the point. His mind is made up, look at that, before His Son even gets close and is able to say anything. His mind is made up. He's already going to throw him a party. doesn't matter if he says the right things. Do you see that? It doesn't matter the formula the son has concocted. It doesn't matter just how much this son has figured out, how deeply he has hurt his father. It doesn't matter. He thought his son was dead. And when he saw him come up over the hill, so to speak, all of that went out the window. Love, mercy triumphed in that moment over judgment. Like it always will. That's the whole point. That, that's the whole point. While his son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Oh, come on. Just say, man, I'm, I'm glad you're alright. You know, that's a big mistake. I hope you learned your lesson. You know, that would be, we'd be like, wow, that father's merciful. But like, goodness sakes, the detail. By the time the young man starts to recite his speech, his father is already making party arrangements. You see that? He doesn't even respond to what his son says. He just tells the servant. Notice that. He doesn't respond to the son. He looks at the servants and says, okay, go get everything ready. 
What is Jesus trying to say? Who really is this God of whom we speak and sing? When we sing that, that Christ receives sinful men, that statement is true. It's true. And He receives them with joy. He wants to do it. He wants to do it. They begin to celebrate in verse 24. There it is again. There's a lot of that going on in this text. It's almost like celebration is the point here. In fact, we know it is. Because as we read on here, let's try to make the connection. Don't forget between the Pharisees and scribes in verses 1 and 2 and what we see here in verses 25 to 32. Let's read. Now his older son was in the field. Oh boy. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, now, now we all, let, before we pile on the older brother, this is everybody. This is, the, you, this is what we would all do. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. You hear that hurt and anger. And bitterness at his younger brother. At his dad. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. When the Pharisees and scribes got close to Jesus, do you know what they heard? Music and dancing. He was eating with tax collectors and sinners, not with them. And they had worked in the fields dutifully their whole lives. If, if, if they had given their lives to being righteous, to making Israel righteous, if this Jesus really was from God, surely he would be celebrating with them. God would be honoring them for their service. Instead, Jesus eats and drinks with the tax collectors and sinners, people who have done nothing for Him but rebel against Him. Can't you just hear Jesus revealing the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes here? You can see the connection so clearly. That's what they're thinking. All these years we've served God and tried with all our might to keep the law, and not once has God ever acted like He recognized it or cared about it at all. We didn't sell ourselves out to the Romans. We didn't start making a profit off the backs of our brothers and sisters. We weren't sexually promiscuous. We didn't become drunks. We weren't lazy. We tried our best to keep the law. Outwardly, we've kept almost all of it perfectly. There's, where's our party? Where's our feast? You feel their anger. God comes and He eats with them. 
Look at the older brother in, brother in verse 30. This son of yours. I love he, he won't even call him his brother. This son of yours. He's thinking, they're thinking, how could the father do this? So he told them this parable. There was a celebration going on while Jesus walked the earth and they resented it. And beloved, they resented it because they thought that God welcomed people based on what they had done for Him. They thought God was only kind and favorable to people who were sincere and moral and honorable, when in fact, Jesus reveals that the soft spot in God's heart, so to speak, is for the sinner, for the one that can't lift a finger of worship and devotion to God because they're too overrun by their own fear. But there's a deeper reality here. Jesus does not paint a picture of a God who does not love the self-confident or self-righteous one. You see that. What does the Father do in verse 31? He entreats the older brother to come in and join the feast. Why? Because we are all in need. We're all completely dependent on the generosity of a Father. All of us. We're all swallowed up in our own guilt. We please stop kidding ourselves. One son needed his father's love because he had trampled on it. The other needed his father's love because he thought his dad only loved him because he'd earned it. Which is why the party offended him so much. Beloved, none of us deserves to be loved by God. None of us. God doesn't love based on worth and merit. We find out from Jesus what's been hidden all along is that God just loves because that's who God is at His heart and nature. Just come home today. Just come home. Some of us are prodigals. You know, we, we can't ever get it right. We just end up in pig slop over and over again. But then some of us think that He only loves us because we're trying really hard to behave. So that when we fail, or when we see an absolute scrub get mercy, we can't celebrate. We can't be happy. The prodigals among us are afraid that God won't show mercy to people like us while the older brothers among us think the only reason God is merciful is because we keep our lives more together than the prodigals do. We all need the Father to be exactly like Jesus deliberately paints Him to be in Luke 15. Because if He isn't, if my citizenship and my acceptance before God and my adoption and my forgiveness and my redemption and God's mercy to me and His grace to me are for a second dependent on my own ability to prove I should have it, I will never get it. Ever. Look at verse 32. Listen to this sentence one more time. It was fitting. Wait a minute. It was right? It was fitting to celebrate and be glad? For this your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found 
the right thing for God to do by God's own holy standards is to celebrate and be glad? The celebration is the holy response. The godly response. It's fitting to celebrate. Who knew? Who knew that this is who He was? Jesus doesn't condemn the tax collectors and sinners here. He's speaking to the Pharisees and scribes. You do not know who God is. You do not... You do not know my Father. Correct your thinking about God. Repent is what He's telling them to do. He loves sinners. And you shouldn't resent that because that's what you are, is what He's telling them. Now come and sit down with us and eat and drink. You see that. Jesus Jesus was kind to Pharisees here. Like, why are you staying out there? Why are you mad? Sit down with us. Sit down with us. Eat and drink. I'll break the bread. I'll pour the wine. Just sit down. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Could you ever imagine that God doesn't save us and then resent us at least a little bit? that he, he doesn't leave us outside the house. How can that be? You know, have you ever thought about that? Yes, I saved you, but we aren't friends. Right? I did that because I had to. It cost my son his blood. The books are settled. You're in. But let's not pretend for a minute that that means make yourself at home. Have you ever felt, you want to know this resides in you? Be invited into somebody's house for dinner and let them tell you that. Make yourself at home. I can't do that. I can't just, can I have a drink? Well, yeah, it's in the refrigerator. Get up, go get it. No, no, no. I, I can't do it. Kids can do it. Kids will do it without you even telling them that. They're just like, where are the Doritos? It's just the opposite, actually. It's, it, I mean, we're talking about God. And He doesn't hold us at arm's length like that. Like, you're saved, yes, but like, that cost my son's blood. It's hard for me to look at you. It's hard for me to accept how you got in here. It's never like that. Ever. When we crest the hill, smelling like pig, He runs and embraces us. Because that's who He is. And lest we think there's a miscarriage of justice, that's what Jesus took care of. It's fitting because the price has been paid. That's what's being pictured in Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. That's what's being pictured in the incarnation itself, beloved. Jesus coming to the earth, taking on human flesh. This God throws parties and you and I have been invited. Jesus wasn't eating with tax collectors and sinners because they had concocted the right amount or form of genuine repentance. Jesus didn't go after their repentance that way. He's not there because they've earned it. He's there because they don't. And it's His grace, His kindness, 
that leads to repentance. He was eating with them because he had come to reconcile them to God. The food and the drink were symbols of the sacrifice by which he would accomplish that. And the party is so that you and I would know that God is excited and happy to do it. What an amazingly merciful thing to be told. So beloved, we don't do God any honor when we live as timid and terrified Christians that that are trying to figure out how to not disappoint Him today. That's not fitting. It's not right. You know what's fitting, beloved? You know what's fitting? Enjoying your salvation and resting. Hitting your pillow every night, believing that against all the evidence, He really does love you. Believe it. That He has given you a seat at His banqueting table and His banner over you is love. The war is over. Reconciliation is made. God is wiping away tears at this table. He's not causing them. So you bring all your history. Jesus will bring the bread and the wine. Don't try to serve God as though He's a constantly disappointed Father whose love you have to earn Repent and believe the gospel this morning. Repent of not seeing him correctly as he's revealed himself to you and believe the beauty and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He threw you a party. Enjoy it. Pharisees and scribes, people that think God is a banker who rewards based on merit and worth, they're always going to grumble at the radical nature of salvation. They'll always look down on those with the audacity to enjoy the party. Listen, you let the Pharisees talk. Let them talk. The mission to save sinners trumps the need of the moment, doesn't it? That's what we see here. Because God is passionate to save. So what do you do? You leave the 99 when that's the case. You leave the 99. You sweep the house. You use up all the oil. You forget that decorum mandates you punish the Son accordingly for running off. Beloved, God did mete out the just punishment for our rebellion. He just didn't mete it out on us. Our older brother absorbed all the wrath we deserved. All of it. So it is finished. It is finished. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad. We are not uncared for foster children. We aren't even resented stepchildren. Those who believe are sons and daughters of God with all the rights and privileges appearing there too through Jesus Christ. The only good son that has ever lived. Do you see it? This older brother doesn't resent God's welcoming of us. Not this one. He's the source of God's welcoming of us. Jesus is nothing like the Pharisees and the scribes. And He's Jesus. He actually is holy. So all of you this morning, all of you, come home. Come home. Rebellious prodigal, self-righteous older brother, come home. Run into His embrace. And if you've been a prodigal who doesn't know Him, has never come home. If you've believed in Jesus as we've spoken, you understand that you're a sinner and you've come to Him. When I come down here in just a minute, would you come and tell me so we can celebrate with you and be glad?
But remember, I close with this. Whatever joy you see among us, clapping and happy that you've come to Christ, don't ever forget. It will pale in comparison to the smile and the embrace of God your Father. And whether you've been saved or whether you haven't, don't ever doubt that this is who He is. Don't ever doubt it again. Don't let anybody trouble you. He's overcome the world, which means He's overcome all your rebellion. Come to Jesus. Come to Him. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing one last song together. I'll be here in the front if you'd like to come forward and pray. Our Father, I thank You so much for this time that You've given us. I thank You for Your Word. Father, I pray that You would enable everyone to believe it this morning. That, Father, when the inner prosecuting attorney attorney comes to tell us that there's no way this could be ours, would You slay him for us? When the inner defense attorney comes to assure us that we've earned God's love, would You slay him for us? God, may Your Word have its way. May You bring to life May you comfort your people. This I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.